This Court Junkie episode is sponsored by Lifeway Kiefer. Did you know that Lifeway only uses milk that comes from grass-fed cows that have not been treated with any artificial hormones? That means no RBGH, no RBST, no RB anything, and no antibiotics either. And this is true of all Lifeway products. Lifeway Kiefer is my absolute favorite, and in fact, I'm sipping on a cup of blueberry Lifeway Kiefer right as I record this episode. You can find Lifeway Kiefer in the dairy aisle of your local grocery store, and you can go to lifewaykiefer.com slash courtjunkie to get a dollar off your next purchase. And don't forget to try their seasonal spring flavor, hibiscus rhubarb pie kefir. That's Lifeway. K-E-F-I-R dot com slash court junkie. Hey everyone, this is Jillian and you are listening to episode 21 of the Court Junkie podcast. By now, you're likely familiar with the subject of today's case. If you didn't see him plastered all over the news in the last few weeks, then maybe you caught episode 13 of this podcast, where I covered Aaron Hernandez's first trial when he was found guilty in 2015 of the murder of Odin Lloyd. This time, I'm going to cover Aaron's latest trial, and then the absolutely shocking event that took place afterwards. Now to the story that is sending waves of astonishment through the sports world. The one-time star tight end for the New England Patriots, Aaron Hernandez, was found dead. Former New England Patriot player Aaron Hernandez was found dead in his jail cell this morning. That happened at around uh, 4 o'clock. The discovery was made around 4 o'clock. According to Department of Correction uh, officials, is that Aaron Hernandez was found in his cell shortly after 3 o'clock this morning hanging from a bed sheet that they say he had somehow connected to his cell window. They say life-saving techniques were performed. He was taken to a hospital where he was pronounced dead. But before we get started, I want to say a quick thank you to all of you for listening, subscribing, sharing with your friends, and leaving me reviews. Just as a reminder, you can discuss this case, as well as many others, in my discussion group on Facebook. Just go to courtjunkie.com slash Facebook. You can also find me on Twitter at courtjunkiepod and Instagram at courtjunkie. And you can email me at podcast at courtjunkie.com. Now, on to the show. In early March 2017, Aaron's latest trial was scheduled to begin. He was already in prison, serving out the beginning of his life-without-parole sentence after having been convicted of Odin Lloyd's murder. But his legal trouble wasn't over yet. He had been charged in another murder case, the 2012 murders of two men in Boston. Let's go back to when that case first started, in July 2012, when a 22-year-old Aaron Hernandez had just begun enjoying wealth and fame as an NFL football star, a tight end for the New England Patriots. In the early morning hours of Monday, July 16, 2012, Aaron went to a club called Cure in Boston's theater district. He went with his friend, Alexander Bradley. They reportedly went out to clubs together a lot, 
often enjoying VIP status with their own VIP hosts and battle service. And this night was no different. At least, it started out no different. While Aaron and Alex were escorted into the club, there was another group of guys who were there, waiting in line to get in. 29-year-old Daniel De Abreu and 28-year-old Sefiro Furtado were there with a few friends of theirs. Their experience, as a state prosecutor would later tell it, was a bit different than Aaron and Alex's. There wasn't any VIP service or skipping of lines or free bottles. Both Daniel and Sefiro were immigrants from Cape Verde, an island country made up of 10 volcanic islands in the central Atlantic Ocean, about 350 miles, or 570 kilometers, off the coast of West Africa. Sefiro Furtado came to the U.S. in December 2011. Prior to that, he worked as a tour guide at a tourist destination in Camp Verde. He moved to the United States to be with his mother and his family, who was already there. He started working with one of his cousins, doing commercial cleaning, and he often worked late-night shifts. Daniel De Abreu was also from Cape Verde. After graduating from high school, Daniel joined the military for two and a half years before becoming a police officer. He was a police officer for about five years, and then he came to the United States in August 2008, also to be with his family. He worked overnights for a cleaning business as well, but he reportedly dreamed of being a police officer in Boston. Although they didn't go out to the clubs very often, both Daniel and Sefiro were off of work the next day, so they decided to go out on that Sunday night in July when they ended up at Cure. Once inside the club, Daniel reportedly started dancing, and while he was dancing, he reportedly bumped into Aaron Hernandez and spilled Aaron's drink. He smiled, brushed it off, and didn't think anything of it. And maybe Aaron didn't either. But as that same prosecutor would later argue in trial, maybe he did. A couple hours later, Daniel, Sefiro, and their friends were leaving another nightclub that they had gone to later in the night in the same area as Cure. But now it was time for them to get some food and head home. As they were in their BMW, stopped at a stoplight, a silver SUV pulled up alongside them. They heard a man say, yo, what's up now? And then the man hurled a racial slur at them before a barrage of bullets came at them. Their car filled with panic. One of their friends, Aquilino, was in the back seat when the shots rang out, and he leapt out of the car, bleeding from his arm. The silver SUV sped away, and as he walked over to check on his friends in the front seat, it was too late. Both Daniel and Sefiro were dead. While investigators struggled to solve the investigation into Daniel and Sefiro's murders, Aaron Hernandez's career was taking off. Six weeks after the shootings, Aaron signed a five-year, 
$40 million contract with the New England Patriots. And in October of that year, he proposed to his high school sweetheart, Cheyenne Jenkins. And a month later, in November, their daughter was born. Daniel and Sefiro's murders went unsolved for the next year, until Aaron Hernandez became the number one suspect in yet another murder, the murder of Odin Lloyd, a 27-year-old semi-pro football player who also happened to be the boyfriend of Aaron's fiancé's sister, someone who could have potentially been his brother-in-law one day. At the time, New England Patriots fans, along with members of the media, were stunned. Aaron had a multi-million dollar contract in the NFL, and he was perfectly set up for success. But could it be that he was a murderer, too? As Aaron sat in jail, awaiting trial for Odin's murder, he was hit with two additional murder charges, the murders of Daniel De Abreu and Sefiro Furtado. And as Aaron went to trial for Odin's murder and was convicted, many people were wondering whether he would be convicted of the double murders, too. And if all that wasn't enough, Aaron was also hit with a witness intimidation charge for allegedly shooting Alexander Bradley, his one-time best friend, in the face, after Alex allegedly brought up the double homicide. So here we are in March 2017, and Aaron was facing a total of eight charges, two counts of first-degree murder for the murders of Daniel and Sefiro, three counts of armed assault with intent to murder for the three other passengers in the BMW that night, the witness intimidation charge for shooting Alexander Bradley, and an unlawful possession of a firearm charge. Now, even though Aaron already had one murder conviction under his belt, the jury didn't know that, or at least they weren't supposed to know that. His conviction in Odin Lloyd's murder was not allowed in at this trial, so as not to prejudice the jury. Aaron's trial began on March 1st, 2017, and he was being represented by Jose Baez, Ronald Sullivan, and Linda Kenny Bodden. The judge in the case was Judge Jeffrey Locke. And if the names Jose Baez and Linda Kenny Bodden sound familiar to you, that may be because both were on Casey Anthony's defense team at one point, with Jose Baez being Casey's lead attorney. In his opening statements, Prosecutor Patrick Hagan laid out his theory of the 2012 murders, saying that two worlds collided in the early morning hours of July 16, 2012, at Cure. The worlds, he said, were on the one side, working-class immigrants from Cape Verde, and on the other, a professional athlete who was a celebrity in Boston. He said, what started as an interaction, a simple bump, a spilled drink, and an exchange of looks— ended hours later in what the evidence will show was a cold-blooded, senseless, and deadly act of violence. The idea that Daniel bumped into Aaron and spilled his drink may sound like nothing, he said, but the seeds for this murder were planted months, if not a year, before. Hagen explained that in the months before this murder, there were multiple times where Aaron told people that he felt tried, 
disrespected and threatened when he was out. Someone staring at him the wrong way would lead him to get angry. So on this night, after Daniel had spilled the drink and smiled at Aaron, Aaron was furious. That said it all, Hagen said. That was a sign of disrespect. He said there's surveillance video from outside the club from just after this incident, where you'll see Alex trying to calm Aaron down. Hagen said Daniel and Sefiro's friends will tell you that nothing really happened that night before the shootings, and that they didn't even know about the interaction with Aaron. Hagen said you'll see on the surveillance video a silver SUV driving slowly by the victims a few times. When Daniel, Sefiro, and their friends got into their BMW, Daniel was driving and Sefiro was in the front passenger seat and three of their friends were in the back seat. Hagen said that Aaron was the shooter, that while he was in the passenger seat of the silver SUV, he leaned over Alexander Bradley and fired the gun five times. Bang, 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 bang. Even after he ran out of bullets, he continued shooting. Click, click. Hagen said he had deadly accuracy, killing Sefiro and Daniel. Sefiro was killed instantly, while Daniel died within minutes. He said Aaron then tried covering up the crime by having his cousin hide the SUV, hiding the murder weapon, and getting rid of his cell phone. Then Hagen told the jury their theory behind the witness intimidation charge. He said Aaron trusted Alex not to tell police about the crime. But seven months later, in February 2013, Alex made the mistake of mentioning it. And at that point, Aaron Hernandez knew that he could no longer trust Alexander Bradley. Within 24 hours, Aaron shot Alex in the head. It's a miracle that he survived, Hagen said. The evidence will show that Aaron thought that he was dead and pushed him out of the car before driving away. When police asked who shot him, Alex wouldn't tell them, saying he didn't know. And he later told the detective, I'm just not going to tell you who shot me. Then Hagen talked about how they were able to tie Aaron Hernandez to the double homicide almost a year later. On June 21, 2013, an 18-year-old girl from Bristol, Connecticut, where Aaron was from, got into a car accident. Police performed an inventory search of the car and found the murder weapon in her trunk. And, Prosecutor Hagen noted, she has ties to Aaron. Don't try to make sense of murder. Murder doesn't make sense, he told the jury. In his opening statements, Aaron's attorney, Jose Baez, told the jury that the real killer was not Aaron Hernandez, but it was Alexander Bradley, the government's star witness. And he said that it was all over, a drug deal. Baez said the prosecution made a deal with Alexander Bradley, that he was receiving immunity for his testimony against Aaron. He said they wanted to convict his client so badly that they made a deal with the devil. Baez said Alex was a violent drug dealer who told lie after lie to save himself. 
He said police did not thoroughly investigate him and instead fixated on Aaron, who was a notch in their belt. He said there is no DNA, no fingerprints, and no other forensic evidence linking Aaron to the killings. He said, ladies and gentlemen, this did not happen over a spilled drink. This happened over a drug deal. Bias said Alex dealt marijuana to Aaron and that Alex liked to party with him. He said that many football players in the NFL use marijuana, that it's commonplace among NFL players, and that it makes them heal faster for the next game. Bias said Aaron and Alex were friends and close at times, but that it was a mutually beneficial relationship. On the night of the murders, Bias says that you can see on the video surveillance outside the club that Daniel De Abreu knew who Alex was when he saw him at the club, and when he saw him, he looked away. He said you can then see Alex pointing towards him. Baez's theory was that Alex knew Daniel and Sefiro and had dealt drugs to them that night in the club. Something had gone wrong, and so Alex was the one who wanted them dead, and Alex was the one who killed them. He said as for the two worlds that the prosecutor was talking about, there's nothing wrong with that. Aaron worked hard for his success, he said. He earned it, and no one gave him anything. He said Aaron and Alex were only in the club for nine minutes, not ten. And in that nine minutes, the state would have you believe that someone so recognizable as Aaron could get into an altercation with someone, and yet no one noticed. That's a fact, he said. Not only did no patrons of the club see anything, but Daniel's own friends didn't see anything either. Not only do you have zero witnesses, you have zero probability for this happening, Baez said. He pointed out that there is absolutely no video of the nightclub downstairs. He said it mysteriously disappeared and that you can only conclude one of two things— Either the police saw what was on it and didn't like it, or the nightclub could have made this whole thing disappear because if there were drug deals going on in that nightclub, can you imagine the lawsuits? He said the club would get shut down immediately. He said when Aaron left the club, he was not upset, and he had zero moisture on his clothing, which he said you can see on the surveillance video. He said it's scary how easy it is to accuse somebody with no evidence as long as the prosecutor is experienced. He said some of the evidence that will come out at the trial will be outright intentional misconduct by law enforcement and that some of it will be simple negligence. He said that Daniel's two friends who were in the back seat and who didn't get shot didn't wait around for the police. They took off. So whatever was in that car, or whatever they had with them, is forever gone too. He said the bodies of Daniel and Sefiro were desecrated and treated so disrespectfully that the evidence was lost. He said not a single citizen should ever be processed this way. Sheets were thrown over the bodies, and then the BMW, with the bodies inside, was towed away to police headquarters. He said, if you're on your way to work on a Monday morning and you see a car being towed with dead bodies in it, that's Boston's finest for you.
Baez said the prosecution got a lot of facts wrong. He said there were six shots fired, not five. The gun shoots six, and he said that they will bring the jury science and show how those bullets were fired. He also cast doubt on how the gun was found, saying that of all the guns found in that area, this was the only one that was sent for ballistics testing. He said the gun prosecutors are saying is the murder weapon was made in 1913, and so why would someone who had as much money as Aaron be running around with a gun like that? He said there was another problem with the gun, too. The girl whose car had crashed with the gun inside picked the wrong gun out of a lineup. She said her gun had the serial number scratched off. He said Alex also says that it's not the right gun. There's also no fingerprints or DNA on the gun. He said the defense tested the gun, and they found other DNA profiles, but not Aaron's, and not Jaylene's, the girl whose car it was. Bias said the police made a lot of mistakes, and that the defense ended up picking up the pieces where the police and the state dropped the ball. He said a bullet hole, for example, was completely missed. How does this happen, he asked. How do you flop an investigation so easily? It's easy, he said, when you don't care about the victims or about this case. He asked the jury to render a verdict of not guilty, saying that this case is absurd and outrageous. He said there is zero evidence that the police investigated this case properly, and if they can't prove that Alex didn't shoot the gun himself, that's reasonable doubt. The first witnesses for the state were the sisters of both Daniel De Abreu and Sefiro Furtado. Both said their brothers didn't do any drugs, and both said that they had never heard their brothers talk about anyone named Alexander Bradley. Sefiro's sister said that the night he died, he told her he was going to a club, something he didn't do very often. She said he didn't want to go, but his friend talked him into it. Daniel's sister said that her brother borrowed her car, the BMW, on the night that he was killed, and that's the car that he ultimately died in. Both sisters sobbed as they were shown photographs of their brothers. Sean McCann testified that he was at a bar in the area the night of the murders. At about 2.30 in the morning, he and a friend were heading home, when a guy by a silver BMW waved him down. The man had a bullet hanging out of his arm, and he asked Sean to call for help. Sean stopped his car and called 911. He asked the man if anyone else was hurt, and he said that two of his friends were. Sean looked back into the car, and he could see the driver slumped over with a gunshot wound to his chest. He didn't appear to be moving. While Sean is on the phone with the 911 operator, you can hear the man in the background, continuing to tell him to call 911. Sean tells the dispatcher that one of the men is hurt bad, and that the driver isn't moving at all. He said he's assuming that it was a drive-by. About two minutes later, the police arrived. Sean said he was kept at the scene for about two hours. He watched them put the sheets over the bodies, and then over the windshield. He said police taped off the scene, and he and his friend were interviewed separately 
and they gave statements. The responding officers took the stand next. They testified about what they saw when they got to the scene and how they put up a perimeter to make sure no traffic or pedestrians got through. Luciano Serena Yuso was the first officer to arrive on the scene. He said he came across a silver BMW and noticed that the doors were open, and at the time, he thought the car had been in an accident. There was broken, shattered glass on the ground, and two people in the vehicle appeared to be unresponsive. But as he got closer, he said one of the guys appeared to have an apparent gunshot wound to the head, and the other, a gunshot wound to the chest. He said he observed another guy with a wound to his right arm. This man was outside the vehicle and had blood all over him. Crime scene tape was put up within 5 to 10 minutes, and Serena Yuso said that both people and vehicles were prohibited in the area once they got their perimeter up. On cross-examination with these officers, Baez was able to establish that a street sweeper went through the crime scene and that at least one officer had witnessed it. The officer testified that there was potential evidence that may have been collected by that street sweeper because they couldn't find any ballistics evidence at the crime scene. Baez also questioned the officers about the sheets that had been placed on the bodies. You're aware that sheets being placed on the bodies could destroy trace evidence, he asked. Boston Police Sergeant Sean McCarthy said that it could including any blood pattern evidence that could possibly assist in determining what happened, Baez asked. It could, McCarthy responded. A Boston EMS paramedic testified, saying that he had placed the sheets so that he could preserve the dignity of the victims. Surveillance photos were shown to the jurors, depicting the parking garage where Aaron and Alex had parked their car the night of the murders. The still photos show the silver SUV, as well as Aaron and Alex walking out to go to the club. On the third day of the trial, the jury took a field trip to the theater district, which was only about a mile away from the courthouse. They went inside Cure and then walked to the intersection of Shawmut and Herald, where the shootings occurred. They then went to the Boston Police Department Evidence Facility in Hyde Park, to see the silver Toyota 4Runner SUV that Aaron and Alex had allegedly been in during the shooting. Then the jury was sent home, as that street sweeper who had been on duty the night of the murders took the stand. The judge wanted to hear his testimony so he could determine how much of it he would allow in front of the jury. The street sweeper testified that he drove past the crime scene on the morning of the murders and that he told police that he saw a white SUV with a woman standing through the sunroof with a recording device. The defense said this information was hidden from them, and that it proves that someone else may have been on the scene. The street sweeper also said that he was forced by police to empty his trash container so they could look for shell casings he may have picked up while sweeping the area. Detective Paul McIsaac testified that the street sweeper never told him anything about the possible woman in the white SUV and that he was surprised to hear about it. He also said the street sweeper emptied the trash on his own and that they didn't think he was even close enough to the scene to have picked up anything of value. 
After this testimony with the jury outside the courtroom, Aaron's defense filed a motion to dismiss, saying that by the police instructing the street sweeper and his supervisor to empty the trash from the truck, their reckless actions destroyed exculpatory evidence. They said that a dismissal of the indictment, or, in the alternative, an adverse inference instruction, are appropriate to ensure the defendant's constitutional right to a fair trial. The judge denied their motion to dismiss, but said that he would allow the street sweeper to testify during the defense's case. When the trial resumed, the jury learned that the Boston police officers had the car towed with the bodies inside so that it would be removed from public view while they waited for a search warrant. Aaron's defense team was unrelenting about the way the crime scene was handled. They continued asking the officers who testified why they didn't use a police privacy barrier instead of using sheets and towing the car, and questioning why there was a piece of yellow crime scene tape in the back seat of the car. Two guys who had been working security at a nearby nightclub testified. They said they heard gunshots, and they pulled up behind the BMW that was stopped at the light. The light turned green, but the car was still stopped. They went to go around the vehicle, and as they were passing, they stopped and looked inside. One of the men testified that he could see that the passenger was dead and that there was blood. He said he could tell that the driver was taking his last breath. He could see heavy breathing, and then it stopped. Aquilino Friere, Daniel and Safiro's friend, who was shot in the arm while in the backseat of the BMW, took the stand. He said they were leaving the nightclub on their way to get something to eat when they stopped at the red light. What happened once the car stopped at the light? Yeah, the car just pulled up like right next to us. A, a car pulled up right next to you? Yes. What did that car look like? Um, it was an SUV. What color? Uh, gray and silver. And that car pulled up right next to you, the silver SUV. How close did it get to the car? How close the other car was next to yes. the car we was? Not too far, like pretty close. When that car pulled up next to you, did you hear some words yes. coming from the car? Yes. What did you hear? Um, what up, Negroes? What up, Negroes? Yes. Was that a male voice or a female voice? Male voice. After hearing what up Negroes from a male voice, um, did you then hear something else? The voice? Not a voice, but did you hear or see something else happen? You just started shooting. Shots started to be fired? Yes. And could you tell how many shots were fired? I didn't, I didn't have time to count the shots. When the shots were fired, um, did you feel anything? Um, sorry, your question, if I feel anything, like what? Well, when the shots, well, what did you see or feel as the shots were being fired in the car? I mean, in the car you're in, do you see anything flying in the air? Do you see glass? Do you hear something? What, what's happening? The window was blasting, and then I got shot, too. That's, that's so what I heard. Felt. The window smashed out, yeah. and you, you felt yourself get shot? Yeah, I was just trying to cover my head. And how, I put that. How did you try to cover your head? Can you show us what you did? 
like this, right arm. And for the record, you've put your right arm over your head and yeah. your left arm slightly below it? Yes. And were you trying to block or, or to put your arms up to block a, a, the shots that were coming in? Yes. After the shots were fired, what happened next? The car just uh, flew the scene. Um, Did you, could you tell which way the car went? It went straight. The victim's families were quietly crying in court as Aquilino testified. Rashidas Gomez Sanchez, another friend who was in the BMW when the shooting occurred, testified. He was asked if he and his friends had talked about getting drugs after their night of clubbing. Rashida said, no, we don't use drugs. He then testified about how Daniel died in his hands. You say um, shots were fired. Could you tell how many shots you heard? Man, it wasn't loud. It wasn't loud. And what happened after the shots were fired? It was in panic. We get out of the car. I'm trying, I, I'm trying to check my friends if they, they were severe already dead. Like, he, 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 died, he died quick. How do you know? What did you see on, of Safira? It's a lot of blood. And then all this blood come to me, like, you know? My face, my, my clothes. And after that, I get out of the car. Me and Delmar, we, we, we get out on the same side, my side. And then Jackson get out the other side. I'm trying to, we was in panic, and Jackson trying to call me to, let's go, let's go, you know? He was scared. And then Delmar started crying, you know? And then we was waiting for ambulance and cops. Did you go over to Danny at all? Yeah, that, no, I turned around because I saw, I saw, I saw Danny breathe, you know? So I went there like in the, in the F windows, I talked to Danny, I'm here, man, don't die, don't die. So wait, wait, they come, they come, they will come right now, so hold it. But he, he, he died in my hand, man. He died in your hands? Yeah. He said after his friend died in his hands, he got into a cab and went to his girlfriend's house. He was covered in blood. He said he burned his clothes, everything but his shoes, because it was stressful, painful for him. He said he called police later that morning. Prosecutor Hagen tried to ask Rashidas if burning clothes was a cultural thing, but he wasn't allowed to answer, due to an objection from the defense. When asked to describe the shooter, Rashida said, just like him, and nodded towards Aaron. Aaron's defense team told the judge that that sort of identification was supposed to be prohibited after Judge Locke had put a pretrial order in place, limiting Rashida's descriptive testimony. They moved for a mistrial, saying that Rashida's description of the shooter was influenced by what he had heard after the murders. Ronald Sullivan, one of Aaron's defense attorneys, accused Prosecutor Hagen of improperly questioning the witness. Hagen replied that that was inaccurate, disingenuous, and offensive. He said he had been forced to rephrase his questions due to Baez's multiple objections. After a fiery exchange between Hagen and Sullivan, Judge Locke denied the motion for a mistrial and instead told the jury that Rashidas did not identify anyone as the perpetrator of this crime. 
Jamie Furtado, a man who worked security at Cure, said he noticed some interaction between Aaron and Daniel, but nothing hostile. He said Aaron said something to Daniel, and Daniel looked like he acknowledged it. He said Aaron then took a photo with a fan and then left shortly after. Another bouncer at Cure said that he also witnessed the interaction between Aaron and Daniel. He said something about their interaction caught his attention. He wasn't sure why, but it stood out to him as something to watch, whether it was because of their stances or whether it was because it was Aaron Hernandez. He said he watched it for a while longer, but then they split up and nothing else happened. He said he and his friend were driving home later and they came across the BMW. They thought it had been in an accident, so they decided to stop and see if they could help. He said there was a guy outside of the car who was a little out of it and couldn't tell him what happened. When he looked inside the car, he said it was obvious that it was not an accident, and he saw bullet wounds. He said there were no chest movements, so he knew that they weren't breathing. He and his friend realized that it was a murder scene, and so they decided to leave it for the cops. He said he recognized one of the men in the car as the man he had seen at Cure earlier that night, the man who had interacted with Aaron. The man said he and his friend stayed until police got there, and then they gave statements and went home. ER doctor Matthew Mustafi said that Aquilina was brought into the ER by EMS on the morning of July 16th. Aquilino had a gunshot wound to his right forearm, and he said that you could see the metal embedded in his arm. Another Boston detective, Joshua Cummings, testified about the investigation that took place after the murders. He said he secured the surveillance footage from the parking garage and from Cure. He said he didn't have surveillance from the downstairs of the club. He said he told members of his squad that it appeared that they didn't have all of the surveillance footage. He carefully went through what he did have and started contacting people who the victims had been seen interacting with on the video. He also received a list of everyone who had entered the club and had scanned their IDs when going inside. About a year later, Cummings said the investigation was open but unsolved. In June 2013, he received new information, and as a result, he started going back through the videos from that night to try and track Aaron Hernandez's movements. He said there was about five to six hours of footage. He said he saw a silver SUV with Rhode Island plates and was able to get the license plate. He ran the plate and it came back to a Toyota dealer named Jack Fox. On June 26, 2013, Cummings was told to respond to a home in Bristol, Connecticut, the home of one of Aaron's cousins. They executed a search warrant at the home. The garage of the home had windows with white paint over them, and when they opened it, a silver SUV, a 2006 Toyota 4Runner, was inside. They towed the vehicle and processed it at the police station. They took the SUV back to where the shootings occurred and did a few test drives through the area to make sure that it was the vehicle they saw on the video surveillance. Cummings also testified that he found out that Aaron had rented a car on July 17, 2012, at 9.59 a.m., 
the day after the shootings. On cross-examination, Baez brought up some notes that Cummings had made early on in the investigation, notes that referenced a rumor about Sefiro selling drugs in Cape Verde, and another one about a rumor that a Cape Verdean gang may have been targeting Rashidas and another occupant of the BMW. He accused Cummings of not following up on these notes, to which Cummings disagreed. Cummings said he spoke to a Boston police officer of Cape Verdean descent who worked in the gang unit. That officer told him that Daniel was a really good kid who wouldn't be involved in anything like that. He said he also checked law enforcement databases of gang members and associates, and no one from the BMW turned up. Jack Fox, a car dealer from Rhode Island, testified that he had leased out the Toyota 4Runner to Aaron in 2010. It was a promotional agreement. Aaron could use the SUV, and in return, he would provide Jack with Patriots game tickets and make appearances at the dealership. He would also bring the SUV in for regular servicing. Fox testified that Aaron had last serviced the car in May 2012, and that he stopped returning his texts and calls after that. About a month after the murders, Jack said he visited Aaron at his home, and he didn't see the SUV, which he thought was strange. In fact, he never saw the SUV again. Jennifer Mercado, one of Aaron's cousins, took the stand. She lived at the home where the silver SUV was found. She has a deceased sister named Tanya Cummings, who had also lived at the home. She said Tanya was like a mother figure to Aaron. Tanya's husband, T.L. Singleton, who is also now deceased, lived at the home where the SUV was found as well. Jennifer said that he and Aaron were close too. She confirmed that Aaron had been driving a Land Rover and a Toyota 4Runner around the time of the murders. In July 2012, she said that the 4Runner was brought to her house. She said she would see it and assumed that meant that Aaron was over, but he wasn't. She said the SUV stayed there, and she thought that he was trying to hide it there so that maybe people wouldn't stop by his house, thinking that he was home. She said the forerunner was moved into the garage at some point, and that she never saw anyone use it or open the garage door. Massachusetts State Trooper Paul Ayton testified about how the gun was found, approximately a year after the shootings. He said he responded to a three-car crash on June 21, 2013, on I-91 in Longmeadow, with possible injuries. It's standard procedure, he said, that when someone is unable to take their car after a crash, that police take the vehicle and perform an inventory search. One of the drivers involved in the crash, 19-year-old Jaylene Diaz-Ramos, was transported to the hospital with injuries, so her car was inventoried. Inside the trunk, Aiton said he found a revolver, three rounds of ammunition, and condoms, located in a briefcase. Police interviewed Jaylene Diaz-Ramos and found that she did not have a license to carry, so she was placed under arrest. Jaylene's home address was listed as in Bristol, Connecticut. But there was no evidence on the scene that connected that gun to Aaron. Another trooper testified about testing the gun for fingerprints, but said there were no identifiable fingerprints on the gun. 
It was touched by somebody, that's all I can say, he said. He also said that usable prints are usually only found on 3-5% to of guns tested. Boston Police Detective Tyrone Camper is in the Firearms Analysis Unit. He testified that he conducted ballistics testing on the bullets found at the scene of the shootings and on the gun found in Jaylene's car. He was able to link the gun to the shootings. However, on cross-examination, he said he could not link it to Aaron. Antoine Singleton testified next. He is the brother of T.L. Singleton, who had been married to Aaron's cousin, Tanya. Antoine said he has a cousin that they call Chicago, who lived down the street from Jaylene Diaz-Ramos, the girl who had the gun in her trunk. So let me stop for just a second here, because the family ties in this case are a little confusing. Aaron has a cousin named Tanya, who was married to a man named T.L. Singleton. Tanya, T.L., and Tanya's sister, Jennifer, who testified, lived at the home where the SUV was found. T.L., who is also deceased, but whose brother Antoine testified, had a cousin who went by the nickname of Chicago. And Chicago lived down the street from Jaylene Diaz-Ramos, whose car contained the murder weapon. Boston police criminalist Kristen Tolan processed the silver SUV used in the shootings. She said there were white marks on the SUV windows, which indicated that they had been cleaned. She said no fingerprints found on either the SUV or the gun were linked to Aaron. No DNA was taken from the SUV or the SUV's key and sent for testing. There was also a blonde hair fragment, three centimeters in length, that they were unable to determine where it came from. No further testing was done on the hair. John Bielo, a forensic scientist at the Massachusetts State Police Crime Lab, testified that there was no gunshot residue found in the SUV. He said the absence of such residue doesn't necessarily mean that a gun had not been fired. The defense, who was implying that Alexander Bradley had been the shooter, said that the shooter could have held the gun out the window or wiped the gunshot residue away. DNA expert Julie James testified that a sample from the gun was unsuitable for testing due to low quality and quantity. Jaylene Diaz-Ramos's mom testified that Jaylene was very close with the man they call Chicago, who lived down the street from them. And remember, Chicago is a cousin of Antoine Singleton, whose brother was married to Aaron's cousin, Tanya. Cell phone records were introduced next. A cell phone company engineer testified that within seconds of the shootings at 2.37 a.m., Aaron called his fiance, Cheyenne. The call lasted seconds, and it was made while in transit near that parking garage. He said that Aaron's phone records show that people tried to text Aaron the morning after the murders, but that his phone was either shut off, the battery had died, or it was in airplane mode. It was not receiving messages. David Nelson, a tattoo artist who worked at a tattoo shop called Hermosa Inc. in Hermosa Beach, California, testified that Aaron, his fiance, and his baby came into his tattoo shop for tattoos. Both Aaron and Shayana got tattoos. 
She got half of a quote, and he got the other half. Aaron's tattoo said, Remind me that we'll always have each other on his chest. And Cheyenne's read, When everything else is gone. On another occasion, Aaron came in and got two front views of a semi-automatic handgun, one spent shell casing, and a cylinder from a revolver, with five out of the six bullets remaining. He also got one that says, God forgives, and another showing a muzzle with smoke coming out of it and a shell casing. Prosecutors were arguing that this shows Aaron's state of mind and that he was commemorating the murders and the shooting of Alexander Bradley with these tattoos. And then the state's star witness, Alexander Sherrod Bradley, testified. And we'll get into that testimony right after this quick break. My mom and I are very close, and she's a court junkie too. In fact, she often wakes me up early in the morning with a text message about a new case that I should cover or a link to something crime-related that happened in my neighborhood. She's always a worrier. So why am I telling you this? Because Mother's Day is coming up, and a great way to show your appreciation to the mother figure in your life is to send her a beautiful bouquet of flowers. And ProFlowers has an absolutely irresistible deal for this Mother's Day that's bound to make an impression. Their 100 Blooms for Mom bouquet comes with a free glass vase for just $19.99, plus shipping and handling, which honestly is a fantastic deal, which in turn will probably make your mom proud that you saved money. And if you really want to make a statement, you can upgrade to a premium vase and include gourmet chocolates, yum, for just $10 more. You choose the delivery date you want, and Pro Flowers are guaranteed to arrive fresh and beautiful and stay that way for at least seven days or your money back. That's pretty sweet. I was recently on the receiving end of a Pro Flowers bouquet. Thanks, honey. And it was absolutely gorgeous. The only way to get 100 blooms for mom with a free glass vase starting at $19.99 is to visit proflowers.com. Make sure to click on the microphone in the top right corner and use my code COURTJUNKIE. That's proflowers.com and code COURTJUNKIE when you click on the mic. This stunning bouquet sells out fast, so make sure to order today. While on the stand, Alex immediately acknowledged that he used to be a drug dealer, selling about 10 to 30 pounds of marijuana per week. He said for the most part, he sold to a pretty small circle. He said the first time he met Aaron, it was when he was finishing college and before he got drafted into the NFL. They met through a mutual friend, and he said that they were friends who used to smoke marijuana, play video games, and gamble together. Once Aaron got drafted into the NFL, their friendship progressed. They'd go on vacations together, hang out, and go to clubs together. Alex said he used to live in Bristol and that he and Aaron would see each other three to four times a week. He said they were best friends by 2012 and that they usually spoke to each other every day. He said he started noticing Aaron acting differently in late 2011 going into 2012 when they would go out. He particularly he acted in a manner... Um, let me... 
like a tough guy all the time. Like, is the way I would explain it. He, um, he didn't really like people staring at him. He had a problem with things that most people don't have a problem with. When you say people staring at him, what do you mean by that? Like, give us a scenario that you recall. I mean, I recall a couple of different scenarios, but one in particular, a gentleman was staring at him. Where were you? Do you remember which club? Uh, I think we were at Rumor for that particular club. Rumor in the theater district of Boston? Yes. And a gentleman was staring at him, and it turned into, you know, an incident. I, I believe Mr. Hernandez asked the gentleman what he was looking at, and the gentleman responded by saying, I'm looking at you, and, you know. What happened after that? A mild, somewhat of a conflict ensued. Uh, it wind up getting ironed out with the gentleman saying to Mr. Hernandez, you know, I'm looking at you, you lost me a lot of money on the Super Bowl type of thing, <clears throat> is what it turned into. Were any punches thrown? No. Did you have to physically get um, involved in any way? Yes, I wind up kind of diffusing it. I spoke with that gentleman, and, you know, it kind of turned into nothing after that, but that was the extent of that situation. And what about any other situations? Uh, there was an incident in Connecticut, I believe I remember, in Waterbury, Connecticut, where same thing happened with a gentleman who was staring at him. And Mr. Hernandez always had a problem with people staring at him. What, what would he say, if you recall, when people were staring at him? Did he say something to you? Um, he usually would say he didn't like people staring at him because he felt like they were trying him or testing him. And you use the word trying? Trying was the phrase he usually used. He would usually use that word? Yes. Like in what context? Mr. Hagan, do not lead. You said, you said he used a certain phrase in describing when people stared at him. What was that, that word that he used? He asked and answered twice. What would he say? He said he didn't like when people stared at him. He felt like they were trying. Did you have a conversation with him when he would say that at the club, particularly this time in, uh, I think you said Waterbury? Uh, that Well, I don't remember what I said to him at that particular time, but what I usually would say was, you know, you're a famous NFL player. That's what's going to happen. It's not that big of a deal. It's, in other words, I used to try to explain to him that people weren't trying him all the time. It's just the situation, the position he was in, and he didn't really need to overreact all the time to that type of scenario. He said a month or two prior to the shootings, Aaron asked him to get a firearm. He said he felt like he needed it for protection. Did he indicate to you why he wanted you to purchase a firearm for him? Yes, he felt like he needed it for protection. He felt like he was tired of people trying him and, you know, people staring at him. He felt like people thought he was soft or something and he was out to prove something. Alex said he purchased a 357 revolver for Aaron, silver with a brown handle. On July 16, 2012, Aaron asked him if he wanted to go out, and Alex said he did. Aaron came over in his Toyota 4Runner, and then Alex drove it to Boston so they could go to the clubs there in the theater district. Alex said he almost always drove because he didn't like the way Aaron drove. Before they left, Alex said Aaron put his gun inside the engine, under the hood. Prosecutor Hagen went over the surveillance footage with Alex. He ID'd the SUV pulling into the parking garage. At 12.28 a.m., you can see Daniel, Safiro, and their friends walk by in the street, in the same vicinity as Aaron and Alex. 
Hagen asked Alex if he had ever seen those men or interacted with them before, and Alex said no. You can then see Daniel, Safiro, and their friends get in line at Cure. Aaron and Alex walk up a few seconds later, but neither group seems to acknowledge the other. Alex again said that there was no interaction between them. He said once they were in the club, they went to the downstairs bar. Aaron went to the right, and Alex went to the left, to different bartenders. He said he got a drink, and Aaron got one, maybe two. He said they then stood by the bar, talking. There was, there was a group of guys, and one of the gentlemen was dancing, and he kind of danced his way over to where we were standing. So he went in this direction here? Yes. And as he danced over uh, to where you were standing, what happened next? He bumped into Mr. Hernandez, and uh, his drink splashed up and spilled on Mr. Hernandez, and some got on myself as well. How much of the drink? A lot of it or a little? or no, Just like, <coughs> like a splash, more or less, I would say. Like the drink splashed. So it wasn't a, the whole drink didn't spill? No. Did it get on your clothes or on Mr. Hernandez's clothes that you saw? On Mr. Hernandez and a little bit on myself, too. Do you know what, what, what part of the clothing it, it got on? Uh, me, it was on my arm. I got splashed on my arm. Um, I don't know like, exactly where it was on Mr. Hernandez. Did you see any stains on his, on his pants or on his shirt or anything like that? No, I just saw the whole drink splash thing. I saw the splash, but I didn't see, like, stains, no. When the man uh, bumped into him, was the man's back to Mr. Hernandez or was he facing no, him? It was kind of like the side of his body. He bumped in, like, with the side, maybe the shoulder. And the man who you saw uh, bump him while dancing, um, have you seen him on the screen so far yet today? Yes, it was. Yes, I did. And who was that? The gentleman. You asked me if I saw him earlier with the braids, if I ever saw him before. When he bumped Mr. Hernandez, what was the reaction from both of them? Mr. Hernandez got mad. He turned towards him. And, I mean, I'm not sure if he did get words out or whatever, but he turned towards the individual and he was upset about it. What made and you think he was upset? What did you notice about his demeanor? Because he turned angrily, you know, like he, he, he turned. Like he was, he turned in a manner in which he was going to make a, a conversation out of the issue. Did you say anything? I don't remember him getting many words out, no. I don't remember him saying too much, but he turned. What did the man with the braids do? The individual with the braids was laughing. He smirked. He was kind of laughing at the whole situation. He, he was aware of... Was he facing Mr. Hernandez at that point? Yes. And he, he smirked at him? Yes, he laughed. He was aware of the fact that the bump just occurred. He knew what just happened. And he smirked about it. What was Mr. Hernandez's reaction to the smirk? Mr. Hernandez was upset about the incident, the fact that he bumped into him and that the individual, you know, didn't show respect and apologize. He just bumped into him and laughed about it. He said the man with the braids, who was Daniel, was with a group of guys. Alex said he wanted to leave because he didn't want conflict, and he knew Aaron didn't need that either. He talked Aaron into leaving, and they went to a bar called Caprice across the street. He said Aaron was mad when they got outside, and that he was saying that he was pissed and couldn't stand it when people would try him. Alex said he told him that it wasn't a big deal, and that he has too much to lose. It's not worth it. They got to Caprice and got drinks there. While they were at the bar, he said Aaron turned around and pointed out a guy 
who looked like he was with that group of guys that they had seen at Cure. He said they thought that they had been followed in there. Mr. Hernandez turned around and was like, see, see, it's like, it's them, it's one of them. And there was a gentleman that came inside who I thought was a gentleman from the club as well. So it did appear to be a gentleman, like it appeared as though we got kind of followed over there, like someone came out and went over there. What was Mr. Hernandez's reaction? He got more upset. In what way? What did you notice? Um, he was more upset. He was saying to me, like, see, see, type of thing. Trying see. to, you know, bolster his claim that he was being tested and they were following him. And then what did you say to Mr. Hernandez in response to that? Let's leave here, too. <clears throat> what was his level of um, agitation at this point, sir? He was agitated. I mean, it just, it was heightened. You know, it was boosted up again, or more than it already was. Alex said they then left that club right away, too, and went to the parking garage where the SUV was. They drove out of the parking garage, and Aaron can be seen driving in the surveillance video. It was 1.16 in the morning at this point. Alex explained that they drove to another street and parked, then got out, walked around, and smoked. They then got back to the car, and Aaron removed the gun from the hood and went over to the passenger seat. Alex said he then got into the driver's seat. Aaron put the gun into the glove compartment. They drove around for a little bit and made a couple laps. They ended up parking past the parking garage. He said it was almost time for the clubs to let out. So they got out and started walking towards the clubs. Alex said he wanted to look for women, but then he said Aaron stopped him. Once you got up near the garage, at some point, did you turn back and go to the car? Yes. What caused you to go back to the car? Mr. Hernandez said, there they go, there they go. Did you see what he was referring to when he said, there they go, there they go? At the beginning, no. What happened next? I walked back to the car. Well, we walked back to the car. I got in the driver's side. He got into the passenger side of the car. Did he say anything at that point? He was saying, go, go, go. What did you understand he was referring to? Well, I knew he was referring to that a BMW passed at a certain point, passed us, and he was like, go. And when the BMW passed, he said, go. Yes. Did he point to the BMW or did you just see it on your own? Uh, I'm not sure if he pointed, but I know he gestured towards it out the window, like, go. When did he say, there they go? As the car, like, I believe, well, I mean, at the time he said, there they go, I didn't see a car yet, so I don't know. Were you still outside of the car at that point when he said, there they go? Yes. And then you got into the car, and what did you see or hear Mr. Hernandez do next? He was telling me to go because a BMW rolled by after that, and I went went to the light. You pulled out of the, into traffic? Yeah, put my blinker on, pulled out into traffic, and there was a light very shortly thereafter. And, um, a stoplight? Yeah, red light. There was a vehicle, I believe, on my left, and I went around the vehicle so I could see cross traffic before I went through the light. Did you stop at the light, though, initially? Yes. And the vehicle to your left, do you remember what that looked like? I'm not exactly sure what kind of vehicle it was. Do you remember how close you got to that vehicle? 
Um, well, I went around the vehicle, so, I mean, I believe I went from behind it to around it. Once you got around it and stopped at the light, what happened next? I looked both ways, went through the light, made sure there was no traffic coming. Was the light red? Yes, the, right, the light was red. Why did you go through the light? Mr. Hernandez was telling me to go. What did he say exactly? He was saying, tell, he said, go, go, to catch up to the car, the BMW that passed. Did you go through the light? Yes. What, what was your intention at that point? To pull up to the car. That what, if any, observations did you make prior to that point regarding the glove box? After I got through that light, as I was approaching the car, he removed the firearm from the glove box. He being who? Mr. Hernandez. What did you think was going to happen, Mr. Brown? I thought at the very most he might try to intimidate him or, you know, maybe say something or address the issue that happened previously in the club. Did you have any idea he was going to do anything more than that? No. Did I, he state anything about what his intentions were? No. After he said go and you went through the red light and observed the gun being taken out, what happened next? As I was approaching, there was another light after that. I believe that car was at a, a red light. I believe the light was red. And as I was approaching the car, he told me, watch out. You know, he was telling me, roll the window down first is what he said. Roll the window down. And I rolled the window down. And when we got up to the car, like right when we were approaching, he put his hand on my chest and was like, watch out. Like indicating for me to, like, you know, like pushing me back kind of in a seat. Like so I could lean back. Did you lean back? Yes, I did. How did you do that? With the, the power, the button on the side. I reclined the seat. What happened next? Uh, I rolled the window down, reclined the seat, and he leaned, he leaned across me and extended his body out the window with the firearm in his hand. And when you say he extended his body out the window, was his whole body out of the window or just a part of his body? Not his whole body. He extended from where he was sitting in the car across me, like, you know, across where I'm sitting onto my side he was bracing himself like off the I believe I want to say somewhere on the floorboard maybe near he was he planted his feet over on his side and leaned across me extended across my body and what about his uh, his hands where were his hands positioned he wind up placing his hand in the area of the armrest I believe on the armrest and for the record you're taking your left hand and placing it to your left yeah well the armrest would be to his left correct and what hand was he holding the gun in his right hand. What did he do with that arm and hand? He stuck it out the window. He stuck, fully extended across. Where were you, where was the car in relation to the, the BMW at this point? The car was side by side, like real close. What, if anything, did you uh, observe about the inter inside of the car, the BMW? Um, I remember a gentleman, I remember all of them, at least the two front ones with their head down, a gentleman was holding a phone in his hand and that was it, they were. What did Mr. Hernandez do or say? He said, yo, one time, and the gentleman didn't respond, like nobody turned around from the car. They weren't, they weren't aware of the fact that we had pulled up right on the side. How, how loudly did he say, yo? He was like loud enough trying to get their attention. After he said, yo, what happened next? He said, he wound up saying, yo, again. And then they turned, and then he started firing rounds into their vehicle. Did he say something before he fired? Before he fired the gun, he was like, what's up now, niggas? And he started firing shots. 
did he say what's up now niggas after they turned or before, before they turned? After they turned, because originally they didn't know we were there. So after he got their attention by saying, yo, yo, when they turned, he said, what's up now niggas? And started firing shots into the car. How many shots did you hear fired? He fired five shots, five rounds. Did you hear anything after the five shots? Yeah, clicking. He fired rounds and the gun began clicking after. I heard like three or four clicks. Clicks coming from the gun? Coming from the gun. Alex said Aaron was shooting until he ran out of bullets. After Aaron fired the gun, Alex said they pulled away and they were stopped at a red light. He said he looked back at the BMW and he could see someone get out and run. As you started to drive, sir, was there any conversation at that point before getting to the toll? Before getting to the toll, he made a comment when he asked me, he said to me, did I see that? And I said, no, he said, I hit one in the head and one in the chest. And how did he say that? I mean, was he saying it in a, in a, what was his tone in saying that? He was panicked, like, like kind of like a panic tone, like a state of shock. So it wasn't a bragging tone, it was more of a state of shock? Yeah, it wasn't a bragging tone, it was more like shock. Alex said they got turned around as they were trying to flee the scene, and that Aaron had to pull up the GPS on his phone. They drove onto the highway, and just after the toll booth, a state trooper pulled up behind them. The trooper ended up getting off on another exit, but Alex said he was worried, and so he told Aaron that he had to get rid of the gun. He said Aaron took his shirt off, wiped the gun down, and then threw the gun, along with the shells, out the window. Aaron told him not to tell anybody. They then went to Alex's daughter's mother's house in Hartford, Connecticut. He said he told her, her being Brooke Wilcox, that Aaron had just shot two people. They gave Aaron a pillow and a blanket so that he could sleep on the couch. And at some point, Aaron came into the bedroom and said, come here, you have to see this. Alex said he went out into the living room and he saw the news on the TV screen. It was a news report about the shooting. Aaron asked for a phone and a laptop computer. Alex said that Aaron's phone had died while they were in the car. He said he saw him use the phone and saw him look up more news reports about the shooting on the laptop. At some point, Aaron's cousin, Tanya Cummings, came to the home. She left her car there and then took the SUV. Aaron said he told her to take it and clean it up and then to hide it. Over the next several weeks, Alex said they kept their distance from each other for a bit, but then they began hanging out like they used to. He said Aaron told him that Jack Fox, the car dealer who had leased him the car, had come around looking for the SUV. He said Aaron told him that he thought it was the police at first, looking for the car. Aaron told him that he had asked his sports agent how to buy the car from the dealer so that he could get rid of it himself. He said Aaron became extremely paranoid of everything and everybody. He said after the murders, Aaron said he didn't want any iPhones around him because he said he learned that iPhones can record everything all the time. Alex said one of his female friends had gifted him an iPhone and that Aaron got upset about it 
and said that his friend was probably a cop. Alex said Aaron thought helicopters were following him and thought that many people were police officers while they were out. Aaron told Alex that he was having nightmares about the murders, and Alex said he told him that he was too. He said Aaron started referring to himself as Double A, which Alex said was a direct correlation to the double homicide. Alex said Aaron had another gun, a semi-automatic gun that he kept in his basement. A few months later, in February 2013, Aaron and Alex went to Miami for a Super Bowl celebration party that a player from the Baltimore Ravens was throwing. He said Aaron had paid for the tickets there, and they were supposed to go to Arizona afterwards so that Aaron could do a photo shoot that he had lined up for an endorsement deal he had, but they hadn't yet purchased those tickets. Alex said he and Aaron never got into any altercations or had any issues prior to this trip. But one night, they were at a Miami club when Aaron pointed out two men with low haircuts and said that he thought they were cops. Alex said he told him, if they are, it's because of the stupid shit you did in Boston. He said Aaron immediately became standoffish with him. Later, they went to his strip club, and the group ran up a $10,000 bill. He said Aaron wanted to split the bill, but Alex objected. As they left the strip club, Alex said he realized that he forgot his phone, and so he asked the driver, one of Aaron's friends, to go back so he could get it. But Aaron told the driver to keep driving. They started arguing, but Aaron ignored him and told the driver to keep going. Alex said he got mad at everybody, but they continued on, heading back towards the hotel. He said that after a while, he fell asleep in the car. When you woke up from the sleep, based upon the car stopping, what did you see? Mr. Hernandez with a gun in, pointing a gun in my face. When you say your face, what, what part of your face? Directly in my face, like in my, up towards my forehead area. Was the car um, parked at that point or stopped in some way? Yes, the car was stopped. What happened next? I made a gesture, to a defense gesture, to, to defend myself. And, and for the record, you're taking your right hand and putting it up over your face? Yes. And as you put up the defense gesture, what happened? He fired a shot. He f- shot the gun. Where did the bullet strike you? It um, went through my hand, um, blew my finger off, well, part way off, and then it went into my head and blew my eye out. Where did it enter your head? Right above my left eye. Right between your two eyes? Yeah, up to the left. Near your nose? Yep. You, you say it blew your eye out. Which eye did yeah, it blow? it traveled out? across and blew this eye out. My right eye is prosthetic, so it traveled across. So the eye you have now in the right, that's a fake eye? Isn't yes. It? <clears throat> when the gunshot went off, what did you feel? Um, when it first went off, I just remember my ears were ringing, and then I know... Um, Whoever this individual was to my left, I remember him trying to like push me out the car, and that's pretty much did it. Did you did you wake up to find yourself on the ground outside of the car? Yeah, I mean I was still awake I, at that point. I I was never asleep, but yes, I was outside the car. What did you see? Uh, Mr. Hernandez's leg hanging. Well, when I ro- I rode over to a fence 
when I first got pushed out the car, I rolled over and there was a fence and I used the fence to kind of pull myself up and um, Mr. Hernandez's leg was hanging out the driver's side door. The car was pulling off with his leg outside of the door. How could you tell it was his leg? Because he was the only light-skinned, lighter-complected guy other than myself in the car. The other two men in the car, they were African-American? Yes. And what skin tone? Dark-skinned males. Now, how did you get out of the get out of the car? Was it just that the person to your left pushed you, or pushed me? And I believe Mr. Hernandez assisted him. How did how did that how was that done? Because he got out of the excuse me he got out of the front passenger side and helped that man. The, the guy was pushing me on my left. They were trying to pull me out the car and leave me there. They both pulled you out of the car. Yes, Mr. Hernandez helped that guy. When you fell to the ground, were you bleeding? Yes. Alex said he got up and stumbled to the end of the alley, but his head was hurting. He laid down and a guy came over to him and asked him if he was okay. An ambulance was then called. When the police asked him who shot him, he said he refused to tell them. He said he wanted revenge. He didn't want to tell on Aaron. I wanted Mr. Hernandez's life, he said. He said he had three surgeries, and when he woke up the next morning in the hospital... He called Aaron. I called him and um, I said, what's up? And he said, Who, who's this? And what did you say? I was like, you know who this is? Like, it's me. It's your boy. Like, sarcastic with a sarcastic tone. What was his, his tone? He hung up. He hung up? Hung the phone up. And I called him right back again. And did he answer? Yeah, he was like, just playing dumb. He was like, uh, uh, like he, he wasn't really saying too much. And he hung up again. And I called him back again. And I told him, I don't know why you keep hanging this phone up because it's not like I told the police on you. You know, like I ain't telling you. Like, you know what time it is. When I, when I get right, I'm coming back home. You know what time it is. Did you know where he was at that point? Um, if you know. I didn't know for a fact, but he said, he, I'm still down here chilling, something along those lines. Did he seem surprised to hear from you? Oh, he was definitely surprised when he heard from me. When I Why do you him. say that? Because just from knowing Mr. Hernandez and the tone he was using, he was like, huh, like, huh, like, who's this? He was shocked. He definitely didn't think I was alive still. He said he called Aaron again a little later, and he expressed his feelings to him about how he wanted to handle the situation. He again said he wanted revenge. Recordings were played in court of Alex talking to police officers shortly after he was shot. It hurts too much to talk, he says in the recording. You don't know who shot you, an officer asks. He starts to say a Hispanic male, but then catches himself and says a big black male. He said he talked to Aaron a few more times via phone calls, but predominantly texts, in which he told Aaron that he would need to be compensated for what had happened to him, and he tried to get Aaron to meet up with him a few times so that they could handle it. He also texted him and threatened to sue him. He said he saw in the news that the murder weapon had been recovered. He was with his daughter's mother, Brooke, when he saw it. In late 2013, he was contacted by law enforcement about his knowledge in the 2012 shootings. He was subpoenaed to appear in front of the grand jury in Connecticut, but he did not appear and so he was arrested. 
He was also charged with violating a protective order. He was apprehended at his daughter's mother's address, where he wasn't supposed to be. Alex said he decided to cooperate and was granted immunity for his testimony about the murders. Prosecutor Hagen pulled out a 48-page document of text messages between Aaron and Alex from between March 28, 2013 and March 11, 2013. This was about a month and a half after Alex had been shot in the face. On March 28, 2013, Alex sent Aaron a text. Yo, the crazy part about all this is that you did that bullshit for no reason to me. And being a real friend I was to you, I didn't try to ruin you even after you tried to kill me. Keep reading, please. Think about how real that is. So I was a real friend at the end of the day. And the tears should be in my eyes after the way you betrayed me. I never crossed you no way. And the only reason you even got to rock me is because we were so 100. I never thought you'd be the one to shoot me. And that's real talk. Aaron responded, I love you, and you're not going to frame me for some bread. Thanks for the info, and he'll be getting reached out to. Always will love you, because you were my brother, and you know that, but hope the best for you. Alex responded, I would never try to frame you. You left me with one eye, and a lot of head trauma you owe for what you did, and it's too bad you don't know me enough to know that this convo was private between us. It ain't for no lawyer, no cop to see. We both know what happened. The truth is the truth. Keep reading, please. If I dealt with the police, my boy, it would have been over and done with. That's what's crazy about the situation. Uh, We know each other so well, and you know I ain't on no BS. You're too paranoid. That's what's made you do the shit you did. Let me stop you there. What did you mean by you're too paranoid? That's what made you do the, the S you did. He just, he hit a point where he was just paranoid of everybody. He thought everybody was the police or... You know, his, his level of paranoia was so high. And, and what do you say in the next text, sir? And last but not least, I always wanted the best for you. Remember that. You obviously didn't feel the same. Aaron wrote back, I'll always be there for you till the day you die, but not in the state of mind you're in and been in. And I don't know what's gotten into you after all the years we were inseparable. But everything aside, you're always on my mind. And I love you and always will. No homo. Alex responded, What's crazy is, I believe the part is true. You probably do think about how real of a nigga I am and how you even flipped on me. But what sickens me is the fact that you're denying this shit like it's for lawyers or cops. You must not really know me, but I guess I didn't know you either because you would have never. I would have never thought you'd try to end me. But, um, hey, I'm going to be the same nigga till the day I die, too. You picked the right nigga to do that, too, because the average man would have dealt with them people. Alex told Hagen that people was referring to police. He said at this point he had no intention of going to the police. He then sent Aaron more text messages about how Aaron needed to contact his lawyer or he's going to move forward with the litigations. In April 2013, he texted Aaron again. But I see you at the Heat game, Vegas, back, back to MIA, mobbing with your boys, but I know that shit ain't the same without me. My nigga be easy, my G1. Aaron wrote him back and said, I ain't do nothing, but if you ever got me in trouble or ruined my life for something I didn't do, I don't even want to get back at you, but you will pay. I'll be back around the way in a couple months too, and I can't wait to see you because I still see you be at your baby mother's crib a bunch. 
Love you because you can't stop loving someone that was the only person that I fucked with and was like a brother to me. But damn, you're trying to sue me for something I didn't do and don't even know about. If you could win that, then God is on your side. But I doubt something can be proved that isn't true. The text messages get even more intense, with Alex telling Aaron that he has bulletproof vests and guns and talking about Cheyenne's mom's house. One of them read, You know you did it, and since you tried to end me, I will end you if you don't do what you gotta do. Aaron responded, LMFAO, you have no clue. Just know at the end of the day, I will always love you, no matter what happens. But I know you know, deep down, I am not paranoid, nor am I scared, and never have been. And if you do kill me like you said, I still don't care, but I doubt it. I don't even want to kill you, never have. But keep going with all these lies and trying to bring me down, as good as I treated you if you want to. Good luck. Alex said he agreed to testify because he wasn't going to go down for what Aaron did. He said he probably would have prior, but since he tried to kill him, he wasn't loyal to Aaron anymore. In October 2013, Alex was brought in to testify as a witness and was never charged with anything in the case. Aaron's attorney, Jose Baez, then got up to question Alex, and he started with the text messages. Baez established that the text messages that were sent after Alex was shot in the face were sent after he obtained an attorney and started building a case against Aaron. Baez also brought up that Aaron used the nickname Double A whenever he would rap. He pointed out that when Aaron and Alex drove to Boston that night, Alex said he drove and didn't need any GPS then. But then on the way home, Alex again said that he was driving, but this time he needed GPS? Baez asked Alex about a part of the surveillance video where it appears as though, before he and Aaron enter Cure, Alex is pointing towards the line. Daniel, Safiro, and their group of friends were in line at this point. Alex said he doesn't remember what they had been talking about, but did admit that he was pointing in that direction. Baez brought up that Aaron took a photo with a fan at Cure that night. Alex said he didn't testify about that because he didn't see it. Baez then accused Alex of having other business in the club that night. And remember, the defense's theory is that Alex was doing drug deals and that Daniel and Safiro were victims of a bad drug deal involving Alex. Can you explain to me what other business would be? What business are you in, sir? Objection. Reframe the question. Are you a drug dealer? Objection. Overruled. Currently, no. Okay. All right. You didn't see him take a picture with the fan, right? No, I didn't. Okay. That whole time when he went back to that room, you have no idea. In fact, you had no idea up until today, four years later, that Aaron even took that photo, right? Correct. And now you're saying he could have bought two more drinks, right? because you weren't with him. I did see. And we just saw you coming out of nightclub where you're not even with him. Did we? You're behind him, right? 
Yes, I was two seconds behind. After uh, after telling this jury that as soon as it you were on it fast, right? Correct. Those are your words. You were on it fast, and you got him to go out. You got him to go out of the club, right? Correct. And you left together, right? Yes. Not that Aaron leaves first, and he's waiting on you to come up the stairs, right? Correct. I said we left together. Baez replayed surveillance video from outside the club. He said that instead of Alex calming Aaron down, he suggested that it was the other way around and pointed to the fact that Alex's hands were moving more than Aaron's. Baez also pointed out that Aaron was smiling at one point and doesn't look upset. Baez then addressed the gun that Alex said Aaron put in the engine before they left for Boston that night, and he asked why his testimony at trial is different than the interview he gave to prosecutors. And you stated uh, to this jury that you had seen him when he went to pick you up in Manchester. You saw him put the gun in the engine block, right? Correct. Okay. And the hour and a half trip, that gun never fell out of the engine. Correct. Didn't hit any speed bumps or anything like that? I don't know if we hit speed bumps, but the gun didn't fall out of the engine, correct. Okay. And you saw him put the gun in the engine block, right? In Manchester. Correct. Okay. And that's what you, you've testified at the grand jury? Correct. Okay. And that's what you told the jury, the ladies and gentlemen of the jury today, right? Correct. Okay. Do you remember prior to uh, going into the grand jury, they had you give another statement to the police? I know there was an interview. Right. The interview. You remember that? Yes, I do remember interview. Do you recall being asked uh, that, did Aaron normally keep, well, let me ask you the, the question that you were asked that day. Page uh, Page 31. Uh, October 8th. Line 14. Question. Do you know him to keep a gun there before? Answer. I knew when he drove down from Mass that he probably had a gun in, in, in the, I mean, if he had a gun, that's where it would have been, in the engine. Correct. I okay. And you're talking hypothetically. If, if he had a gun, I mean, if, if he had a gun, that's where it would ha be in the engine, right? Speaking hypothetically here. Because of the situation at hand, correct. Right. And then the question, no, no. If he had one at the time when he drove to Manchester, or are you just thinking he did? They're asking you, at that point, do you know, or are you just thinking he may have? Do you remember that question? Thinking he may have what? Had a gun in the engine block. The time okay. frame, please. Line 18. Your answer, no. When he drove to Manchester, I didn't know for sure that he had a gun at all. Do you remember giving that answer? I don't recall, but if it's there, I'm sure that's the answer I gave. Baez then asked about how Alex told police the gun was a 357 Magnum. Alex agreed that that was the gun he had bought for Aaron, and not the 104-year-old gun that police are saying was the murder weapon. Baez then went over Alex's testimony with him about how the shootings occurred. And you didn't want it in any trouble, right? Correct. And you didn't go out for any trouble? Correct. Okay. 
And um, you were also, you cared about Eric. Correct. You didn't want to see him get in any trouble. Correct again. Okay. And yet, two hours later, you're good to go with seeing Aaron get a gun, put it in the glove box, take it out, and then you start driving to chase the BMW. Right? Correct. Okay. And you're okay now, two hours later, with running a red light to go shoot some people. Or scare them. Not correct. There you go. Okay. There you go. And you're okay with that. I was okay with the thought that he and was. And you're also okay with lowering the seat back. Uh, let the witness finish uh, finish his answer, please. You're also okay with hold lowering on. the seat back, right? Mr. Bias, hold on. As you I finish your last answer. No, as I was saying, Mr. Bias, I was okay because I never expected Mr. Hernandez to shoot those individuals. Of course. Now. You're okay now with lowering your seat back too, right? After he told me watch out, yes. Okay. And you testified that when he said, there they go, there they go, you didn't say anything there, right? He said, there they go, there they go, let's go. And you didn't say to Aaron, there who goes? He was already walking towards the car. No, my question to you, sir, is you didn't ask him, there who goes? No, I didn't. You haven't seen these guys in over two hours. Correct. Baez then said that Alex had initially implied that Aaron shot the gun six times. But after talking to the prosecutor and finding out that police had only found five shell casings, he was now saying five or six times. Baez also brought up the fact that according to Alex, they ran the red light to catch up to the BMW prior to the shootings, but that immediately after, he said they got stuck by a red light. It never occurs to you that, hey, I ran that red light, maybe I should run this one too, he asked, and Alex said, no, it didn't. Baez then pointed out that Alex had never been arrested for being a convicted felon and purchasing a gun for Aaron. He then went over the Florida trip, where Alex said that Aaron shot him, In direct examination, Alex had said that he and Aaron went to Florida and that he was supposed to go with Aaron after that to a promo photo shoot that he had in Arizona, but that he didn't have a ticket for that trip yet. He said all he had was a one-way ticket to Florida. But on cross-examination, Baez showed him a plane ticket that was in Alex's name going from Florida to Arizona, but since he got shot, he never made it there. He then showed Alex a photo of the shell casing that was found after Alex was shot in the head. In the photo, it shows that the shell casing was found in a grassy area and not in a car. Baez suggested that Alex was actually shot by drug dealers and not by Aaron, and he pointed out that he was suing Aaron for the shooting while still refusing to cooperate with police. And Baez said that he didn't want to cooperate with police for different reasons. So you were already making it public that he shot you, right? Uh, yeah, it went public at some point. Okay, lawsuits a public record, right? Yes, it is. Okay, and the police knew that you were claiming Aaron was the shooter, right? Correct. Okay, but you still did not want to cooperate with the police, right? 
I still didn't cooperate with the police. Still to this day, you have not cooperated with the Florida police. <laughs> Correct. Okay. And that's because you know that those who you are dealing drugs with in Florida will kill you Objection. if you were to testify or give any information about your drug dealings in Florida. Isn't that right, sir? Uh, sustained as to the form of the question. And that's because of your fear of retaliation from those in Florida, right? Sure. You, know, you may answer that. Absolutely not the case. I have no fear of retaliation. Then, Baez dropped a pretty big bomb. A prior text message that Alex had sent to his attorney. You also deleted this message, did you not? I don't know if I deleted it. Okay. Do you recall deleting this message? No, I don't recall deleting it. I wouldn't have. There's no reason to. Okay. So it's your testimony that you would not have deleted this message that says, now you're sure, well, look, now you're sure once I withdraw this lawsuit, that won't be held on perjury after I tell the court the truth about me not recalling anything. You see the word anything in there, sir? Correct. About who shot me. Do you remember that? Yes, I remember that text. Now you're sure that once I withdraw this lawsuit, that I won't be held on perjury after I tell the court the truth about me not recalling anything about who shot me. Brooke Wilcox, Alex's daughter's mother, testified next. Her story matched Alex's, that he and Aaron came over late on July 16, 2013, and that Alex told her that Aaron had just shot two people. She said a couple months later, when Alex and Aaron were in Florida for that Super Bowl celebration party, she got a phone call from Aaron, asking her if she had heard from Alex. She said three days later, Alex called her from the hospital, saying that Aaron had shot him. On cross-examination, Brooke admitted to having filed a restraining order against Alex two months after he was shot. The defense also brought up the fact that a search for Aaron's address was made on her laptop, and they implied that she had been searching for his address so that she could help Alex pin the murders on Aaron. A VIP host from Boston was called to the stand. He testified that he once was called to calm down Aaron and his friends while they were out at a club. He said Aaron didn't like to be approached, and he said one time, when he greeted Aaron, he was shocked when Aaron called him a fed and said, You're a fucking snitch. Get away from me. One of Aaron's friends, Tyrone Crawford, testified that he was out with Aaron, Alex, and others before Alex got shot. He parted ways with them, but then met back up with them later, and everyone from the club was there, except for Alex. On cross-examination, he said that he had been doing a lot of drugs, and that he may have been mixing up his nights. He also said detectives had tried to pressure him into remembering things that he couldn't. Other friends who had been in the SUV that night testified that they had also been drinking and doing drugs, and that it was hard for them to remember. An expert for the prosecution recounted that five bullets were found at the scene of the 2012 shootings. The first bullet hit Safiro's right temple. The second entered his arm and exited his upper back. 
The third and fourth hit Daniel in the chest area, and the fifth entered and exited Sephiro's head. Shayana Jenkins Hernandez, Aaron's fiance, testified too, just as she had in the Odin Lloyd case. She said she and Aaron aren't married, but they have a four-year-old daughter together, and that she legally took Aaron's last name in 2015. She recounted how she found a firearm in a drawer in their home, and that she gave Aaron a look when she found it. She said she was maybe concerned, but not bothered by it. She said many people keep guns in their home for protection. She said she heard about Alex being shot and thought that it was sad, but she said she never talked to Aaron about it. She said she learned that Aaron had been with Alex when he was shot in a general manner, saying that she knew that they had gone on the trip together. She said she learned to keep her mouth shut in certain situations. I knew my role, she said. She said she never pressed Aaron about Alex being shot because she picks and chooses her battles. After a few more witnesses, much of the testimony which was redundant, the prosecution rested. The defense called to the stand the fan who had taken the photo with Aaron the night of the murders. He said Aaron declined at first, but then agreed after learning it was his birthday. He said he ran into Aaron again later outside, about a half hour before the murders. He said Aaron didn't seem angry or upset. He wasn't contacted by police until two weeks ago, well after the defense had contacted him. Then the street sweeper testified, telling the jury how he saw a woman with a device sticking out of a sunroof of a white SUV right near the murder scene. He said the police were disrespectful to him and told him to shut his mouth and remain quiet. Meanwhile, without the jury present, the defense asked the judge to strike the tattoo testimony, saying that some witnesses had testified that there were six shots instead of five, which the tattoo had portrayed. The judge denied that motion. They also argued a motion to dismiss, saying that Alex had perjured himself on the stand based on that text message to his attorney. Judge Locke denied that too, saying that he's not in a position to assume that Alex lied on the stand. Another defense witness, Jacob Green, testified that he examined Alex's iPhone and noted that there were deleted text messages on there. One deleted text had been sent from Alex's phone to an unknown recipient. Parts of that text message read, Your best move is to keep my name out of your mouth for a few reasons. I ain't never said a word to the police about who shot me. Go read some law books. A civil suit is suing a person, and it's not criminal. You can't find an article anywhere that says I told police he shot me. And, do some research on me. I never told and never will, young boy. The defense's pathologist testified that he could account for six gunshot wounds, based on the victim's wounds and shots within the vehicle. He said the sixth shot, which prosecutors missed, grazed a passenger in the car and shattered the window. He said Daniel would not have felt pain in his last moments, and that he could have been making gasping noises while he was unconscious. He also indicated that the shooter would have had to shoot from down low. In his closing arguments, 
Baez said there was absolutely no evidence that Aaron committed this crime. He called Alex a perjurer and a liar, and he asked the jurors to look at the evidence and what's not there, what investigators left out because it doesn't fit in. He said the Commonwealth is going to ask you who to believe. The drug dealer? Baez held up the photo of Aaron smiling while taking the photo with the fan right before the murders. There's absolutely no proof of anyone spilling a drink on Aaron. He said reasonable doubt lives here, and that investigators weren't going anywhere, that Alexander Bradley wasn't taking them. He said that Aaron was not in the car during the shooting, and said he doesn't look like a female, referencing how the street sweeper said he saw a female at the scene. He said the street sweeper testimony was a bombshell, and that the prosecution hid it from you. Witness after witness, no fingerprints, no DNA, no gunshot residue. They're heavy on emotion and low on evidence, he said. Baez had constructed a board with the prosecution's expert witness photos, and he went through each witness, discrediting them and removing their photos as he did, until the board was blank. How many cockroaches do you need in your food till you send it back, he said. He then addressed Alex's immunity deal. They're handing out immunity around here like it's candy. He said Prosecutor Hagen was like Oprah. Immunity for you, immunity for you. He said, we're going to ride you home because you're going to get us an NFL football player. Baez also had blown up a photo of the text message that Alex had sent to his attorney about him not recalling anything about who shot him. He then played a montage of snippets from Alex's testimony, where Alex says, I don't recall, and I don't remember, calling it Rocky's greatest hits, Rocky being Alex's nickname. He then pointed to a photo of Alex and said, You can't trust this man. You can't ride him home. In his closing, Prosecutor Hagen showed the photos of Daniel and Sefiro's bodies covered by the sheets. He said that the carnage in that car speaks volumes. He then showed a photo of Sefiro and said he was killed with deliberate premeditation. He held up a photo of Daniel and said he breathed in blood and that he was suffering when he died. He then showed the video from the parking garage and said that this is the evidence that Aaron and Alex were in that car. The photo of Tanya Cummings' home was put up on the screen and that's where he stuffed the murder car. Hagen reiterated how the murder weapon was found in the friend of one of Aaron's relatives' cars, and Aaron's phone from the time of the murders was lost, he said, using air quotes. He again played the video from Cure, saying that there had to be a reason why Aaron left the club so quickly, and he talked about how Aaron's phone then went dark. Then Hagen moved on to the shooting of Alexander Bradley. He said Aaron was paranoid and that there was only one person who could unleash that secret. He held up a photo of Alex's face after he was shot. Dead men tell no tales. Regarding Aaron's tattoos, Hagen said, Five bullets. That is not random. That is a statement of guilt. And then he played a snippet from an interview Aaron did in 2011 where he said that all of his tattoos have a lot of meaning. Hagen said Alex was mistaken when he said Aaron threw the gun out of the car window. 
He said people have memory lapses, and that's how the human mind works. And the fact that Alex has this faulty memory proves that the state didn't coach him. Calling the defense's theory that Alex had a beef with the victims wild speculation, he implored the jury not to engage in wild conspiracy theories. The time for hiding evidence is over. The time for accountability is now. The jury of seven women and five men started their deliberations, and about five hours in, they had a question. They wanted to know that if there's testimony providing evidence for conviction from a witness who has immunity, must they have other supporting evidence? The judge told them, the direct answer is no. What you need is corroboration of at least one element of the crime. Judge Locke then cited the case law and said that the jury should not rely solely on the testimony of an individual who was granted immunity. While the jury continued deliberating, the defense filed two motions. The first motion was another motion to dismiss regarding the tattoo evidence. They said they objected to the prosecutors referring to Aaron's tattoos as a confession in their closing arguments. They said, No case in the history of Massachusetts has used a tattoo as a confession. If the judge denied the motion to dismiss, they wanted the judge to give the jury a special instruction on the tattoos to tell them that they can't use it as a confession. But Judge Locke said he was satisfied that a mistrial was not warranted and that he didn't believe that the jury had been misled. The second motion was in regards to the judge's answer to the jury's question. The defense said they want further clarification, but Judge Locke said that the answer he gave the jury accurately stated the law, and he said that if the jurors need further guidance, they can seek it. After eight and a half hours, another juror question came in. It read, We aren't sure if the defendant can be found guilty if we find that he indirectly, willfully threatened Alexander Bradley. Judge Locke responded that the evidence must prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Aaron himself directly pointed the gun at and shot Alexander Bradley. While the jury continued their deliberations, Cheyenne, Aaron's fiance, brought their daughter, now four years old, into the courtroom. Aaron smiled when he saw her and blew her a kiss and gave her a wave later as he was leaving. After 37 hours of deliberations, the verdicts on the eight counts were in. What say you, Madam Poor Person? On indictment 2014-10417, offense 001, charging murder in the first degree, victim Daniel D. Abreu. You find the defendant not guilty? Guilty of murder in the first degree or guilty of murder in the second degree? Not guilty. What say you, Madam Four Person? On indictment 2014-10417, offense 002, charging murder in the first degree. Victim, Zafiro Furtado. You find the defendant not guilty? Guilty of murder in the first degree or guilty of murder in the second degree? Not guilty. The jury also found Aaron not guilty of the three armed assault with intent to murder charges, as well as the witness intimidation for shooting Alexander Bradley. They did, however, find him guilty of unlawful possession of a firearm. For that, Judge Locke sentenced him to four to five years in prison. After the not guilty verdicts were read, 
Aaron visibly teared up, which, if you were a trial watcher watching this trial or the previous trial, that's not something you'd see him do very often, if at all. He hugged his attorneys, looked back at his family, and left the courtroom. And then, five days later... All right, now back to our top story. Former Patriots player and convicted murderer Aaron Hernandez has killed himself in a Massachusetts prison. He was discovered early this morning hanging in his cell by bedsheet. The former NFL star had been acquitted just days ago in two murders from 2012, but he's already serving a life sentence for a 2013 murder. Aaron had reportedly talked to Shayana, his fiance, until 8 p.m. the night of April 19th before going back into his cell for the night. He was in a cell by himself, in the general population. At 3.03 a.m., an officer was walking by, doing a routine tear check, when he noticed cardboard jammed in Aaron's cell door. He forced his way in and found Aaron's body. He had wrapped a bedsheet around his neck and then tied it to his cell window. There was reportedly soap spilled on the floor, presumably to make it harder to get up if he changed his mind. Aaron had the Bible verse, John 3.16, written in red on his forehead, and he reportedly had red markings on his hands and on his feet. There was an open Bible that had been laid out, with the John 3.16 passage open, which says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. There were also three suicide notes, one for his four-year-old daughter, one for his fiance, and another one that's unclear who it was for. An autopsy was performed, and there were no signs of foul play. His family has requested that his brain be sent to Boston University's CTE Center to test it for the presence of CTE, which is a protein that causes brain damage in those who have suffered from concussions or brain trauma. CTE has been found in high proportions, in former football players especially. Some symptoms of CTE can include confusion, impaired judgment, aggression, and suicidal tendencies. Aaron was 27 years old when he died. The day after Aaron's suicide, many media reports surfaced, talking about a Massachusetts legal principle that basically says that if you die before your appeal is complete, the case reverts to the original status, as if the charges, trial, and conviction never happened, meaning that legally, Aaron Hernandez would die with no murder conviction on his record. It would be as if he had never been found guilty of murdering Odin Lloyd. But what would this mean for Aaron's family? And for Odin Lloyd's family? I spoke with Michael Coyne, the dean of the Massachusetts School of Law. I'm reading, obviously, a lot about how the legal doctrine in Massachusetts um, is basically saying that Aaron's conviction for Odin Lloyd's case can now possibly be vacated. Can you explain? Not possibly. uh, That it will? Yep, it definitely will. And I can explain a couple. I'll explain a couple things. The way the law works is that if someone dies while the case is pending appeal, 
um, then because they no longer can assist with the prosecution of their appeal, then the uh, appellate court returns the case to the trial court where the conviction is uh, vacated. And it's vacated because the defendant can no longer assist with the prosecution of their appeal. It's actually not just a vagary of Massachusetts law. Uh, federal law has very similar provisions, uh, and we've seen it on happen in both federal and state cases where convictions uh, are ultimately uh, vacated because the defendant dies on appeal. Uh, the most, uh, the the next most uh, high-profile incident of this uh, is also a Massachusetts case. It was the uh, pedophile priest case, the uh, Father Gargan in Massachusetts. Uh, he uh, was convicted of various uh, crimes in the trial court and ultimately murdered in his cell in prison. And uh, despite the cries of the victims in that case, those uh, convictions had to be set aside because Father Gargan could no longer assist with the prosecution of his appeal. So it's uh, happened before in other high-profile cases. Uh, it's unusual, uh, but it's not without precedent. Wow. And I know that Odin... <laughs> oh, that's, that's, that's wow. Yeah. No, it is wow. It is wow stuff. People have been uh, fascinated by it uh, <laughs> as we start to look at it because it seems, uh, it seems almost bizarre, too, too uh, weird to believe. Uh, and there are some things like that in law, but there is, a, there is a legitimate basis as well, is that if he didn't commit these crimes, the fact that his assistance to his lawyers is no longer available does place the... Um, prosecution uh, at a at a at an advantage in the case, and so it's it seems to be unfair. The real unfairness here, though, is to the the victims' families who now won't get any solace from uh, the, con- the what the jury uh, returned the verdicts of guilty. Odin Lloyd's mother, Ursula Ward has since spoken to the media. She said that even though Aaron's conviction will now be legally overturned, a jury found him guilty of murdering her son, and that's enough for her. She said that she and her attorney will make an appeal for any money that the New England Patriots pay to Aaron's estate when the conviction is overturned. But she said it isn't about the money. It's about my son, Odin Lloyd, she said. It's about families who have lost loved ones. It's about justice. She said she wanted to speak out because there are many other murders that don't get as much attention as her sons did, and she wanted to be a voice for those families, too. On Saturday, April 22nd, Aaron's family released a statement, saying, The family of Aaron Hernandez wishes to thank all of you for the thoughtful expressions of condolences. We wish to say goodbye to Aaron in a private ceremony, and thank everyone in advance for affording us a measure of privacy during this difficult time. Aaron was scheduled to have a private burial on Monday, April 24th in his hometown of Bristol, Connecticut. And meanwhile, Shayana, Aaron's fiance, is suing the Department of Corrections, in part to make sure that no evidence of his death is destroyed. Aaron's attorney, Jose Baez, has strongly implied that he, along with the family, believe that Aaron may not have committed suicide. They have hired Dr. Michael Bodden to conduct a second autopsy. 
And that closes yet another tragic chapter to this very tragic case. The families and friends of Daniel de Abreu and Sefiro Furtado will likely never see justice. And Aaron's fiance and four-year-old daughter will have to move forward with their lives without him. No one wins in this case. And that's all for today's episode. I want to thank Michael Coyne from the Massachusetts School of Law for speaking with me. I'll be posting more of my conversation with him in my after show on Patreon. We talk about how the process of vacating Aaron's conviction works, how it will affect Odin Lloyd's family's wrongful death lawsuit, and the future of the law itself. You can get access to these after shows, as well as get early ad-free access to these episodes, by donating as little as a dollar a month on Patreon. To join, just go to courtjunkie.com support. And if you want to discuss this case, as well as many others, please consider joining my Facebook group at courtjunkie.com Facebook. You can also find me on Twitter at courtjunkiepod and on Instagram at courtjunkie. Or you can always email me too at podcast at courtjunkie.com. Thanks for listening. Until next time.